bit of a historical thing here. I was actually hoping to discuss the entirety of the Pixar chunk, similar to how we did a run of the MCU, all three phases of the MCU, but also how we did the Disney Renaissance. Unfortunately, this was not nominated, so instead what we have is this. Now you're probably thinking, well, I don't remember seeing this on the, the list for you know what we could vote for, and you'd be right. This wasn't on the list. What was on the list was lore picks. So even though you guys decide what I ruminate on, every now and again you make me choose, and this is my choice. I actually thought about going back to covering Toy Story, because there's a lot to discuss there, but since there's no guarantee that I'll cover the rest of the Pixar films, I figured I'd go ahead and just jump into the one that I personally wanted to talk about the most. That'd be this one. Uh, where do I even begin? Why don't we begin by mentioning Brad Bird? Brad Bird uh, was involved in animation and filmmaking in several ways. He actually did part of the teleplay on Batteries Not Included, which is a film I saw way back in the day, and then lost, because I couldn't think of the name of it for the longest time. Uh, then he joined uh, the Klasky Chupo group. And you're probably thinking, who the heck are they? And that's fine, because I'm sure most people aren't aware of them. Uh, they did some work on Rugrats, you know, a couple other Nickelodeon kind of things around that era. Uh, oh, yeah, and a little-known show called The Simpsons. I don't want to delve fully into that history, but the con the transition from The Simpsons being the short thing on old, the Tracy Ullman show over into... God, was it the Tracy Ullman show? Shoot. I might be saying the wrong name. Give me a second. The transition from the show over into being its own show was done under their leadership, and uh, Brad Bird himself is credited as doing so several times. Now, I bring all this up because it's really important to note the Simpsons' DNA in Brad Bird himself. Because, well, I never really noticed it until I started actually analyzing this work. It is Tracy Ullman. I'm, I'm absolutely right. Never doubt yourself, Laura. Every time I doubt myself, I, I, I screw up because I'm actually right, and then I doubt myself when I screw up. Idiot. So, let me skip past that, though. So, Tracy Ullman show, Simpsons. You know, he did a bunch of work for a bunch of animated shorts. Then he kind of shifted over to working on something he really wanted to push. It was something he was working on in his own spare time, a superhero story, which had the bones in some real-life stuff I'll talk about, and you know, I guess we'll talk about it now. The idea that he was worried the only way to really advance his career was to not really have a family life, which is something he obviously valued and cared about, so that was kind of a problem for him. And so that kind of was there subconsciously as he was designing the story. But then he got his break into tele, uh, not, excuse me, out of television into filmmaking with a film called The Iron Giant, which we covered last year. So The Iron Giant didn't actually do well. <laughs> and so that was problematic. And so he was just like, well, shoot, now what? Re shift direction here for a second. Right about at this point in time, Pixar was doing really well. Pixar, at this point, had had Toy Story, Bugs Life, Toy Story 2, Monsters, Inc., and Finding Nemo. Or, I think Finding Nemo actually hadn't come out yet at the exact point in time I'm talking about, but you get the idea. Pretty much knocking it out of the park with each of those films. Well, Toy Story probably is the one that has aged the worst of that bundle. It's worth noting that it's still a good film and still does a lot of things very right. 
But that doesn't matter. Whether a film is good or not actually has nothing to do with whether or not a company is doing well and how willing they are to take risks with new ideas. Now that's important. The Incredibles would never have been made if those films were not absolute box office slams. I got some figures here for you. This is all net. Net worldwide revenue. Toy Story made $363 million. Bugs Life made 243. Toy Story 2 made 407. Monsters Inc. made 462. These are very well selling films, is what I'm trying to say. So, right around this point in time, uh, Mr. Bird reached out directly to John Lasseter, which I'm not going to comment on in this video. And, like it or not, John Lasseter was pretty much the guy in charge of Pixar at the time. And, by the way, an old friend of Bird's from the college years. So, Lasseter is the one who was the in for Bird. As it always has been, it's all about who you know. Because there's no doubt that Bird is actually talented, and he even can prove it at this point. He, by the way, he worked on The Simpsons for eight seasons. The first eight seasons. You know, the stuff we all tend to consider the good stuff. Although, actually, it's probably closer to, like, the first 13 seasons. But the point remaining, he obviously had a good track record and a good career path. It's just, he probably would have never gotten in if not for his personal in with Lasseter. He also would have never been able to sell this story if not for the fact that Pixar was flush with success, financial success, because that's important, because otherwise the money people won't allow risks to happen. That risks thing is a really important thing. There's, They did a lot of firsts when it came to The Incredibles. It was the first one which had a single writer-director, Mr. Bird himself. It was the first one to have all humans. Um, it was the first one to really push the envelope of what they could do with certain tech let me give you a direct example of that. Back in Monsters, Inc., you know why Boo had pigtails? Because they're easier to animate. He, however, insisted that Violet have hair. It was actually a part of her character. In fact, it's a visual representation of her character, because at the end of the movie, she's no longer, you know, she's parting her hair behind rather than allowing it to cover her face. So he really dug his heels on this point, which meant they had to kind of do stuff they'd never done before to a level they'd never done before because adding hair, I know that sounds like such a minor thing, but animating the hair and getting the hair wet and having the hair blowing in the wind and all these other things were suddenly issues that they suddenly had to solve that they hadn't before. Bird himself has a quote, which I'm not going to show the whole quote here, but he had talked about the black sheep. He pitched the idea and the tech people said there's no freaking way, we can't do that. And his response, in his own words, is give me the black sheep. Give me the people who you said no to, who get, who get argumentative or think that they can't really do this some way. Give me the people who want to push the envelope. I actually don't like Brad Bird that much as an individual based on every interview I've ever seen of him and re every interview I've ever read of the man. But that's mostly because he seems um, a little too into it for the art. You know what I mean? And that type of personality always just kind of rubs me a little bit wrong. Uh, don't mistake me, those kind of people are actually really, really valuable for uh, expanding fiction and getting all sorts of new things come, because he did help push the envelope with The Incredibles. They really did push the boundaries of what Pixar was capable of doing at the time, because he was utterly unflinching, good or bad. Um, he absolutely refused to compromise. He insisted there'd be more people. He insisted there'd be more locations. He insisted there'd be more details. And he had two other big things that made people kind of go, huh. One, he wanted to actually storyboard it. Now, I know what you're thinking, but 
storyboarding is normal. Well, actually, at this point, Pix the way Pixar's process had been was you'd hand it off to a separate team, of which there were many, and that team would storyboard their scene or scenes. He wanted to storyboard the movie and use that to, to basically be a part of the directing of the film. This is also one of the reasons why Pixar films prior to now had multiple directors and multiple writers. The, the other thing, though, this one really made people hesitant, because thanks to the nature of the film, this film was PG instead of just G. This was considered a risky move, which I find hysterical in context, but this is something that, would, that made several people go and lose their monocles. Now, I skipped over Finding Nemo earlier, but I do want to mention something. It is an unfortunate reality that I almost guarantee you that despite how well Pixar was doing, if not for Finding Nemo, I don't think he would have been able to actually get The Incredibles made in the manner that he wanted. Why? Because Finding Nemo made $777 million. Net. Uh, by the way, if that's not impressive enough, I remind you, first of all, uh, Toy Story 1 made 363, give you a quick comparison. Second of all, that film came out the same year Lord of the Rings Return of the King came out, which was a box office smash. Also, to this very day, Finding Nemo is the forced, fourth best-selling animated film worldwide ever. Yeah, that, that changed things rather substantially. Finding Nemo was the big success story, financially speaking, for Pixar, and is what, if I was to ever do an analysis of the, sh the series of Pixar films, I would probably have a lot to say about, but all it's relevant for here for The Incredibles is making sure The Incredibles gets made. The last thing I want to comment on is Michael uh, Giacchino. Michael Giacchino is the composer who does an excellent job with the work on this one. But he was kind of, like, successful, but not really, until he worked on this. And then he got to work on a whole lot of other things. Like, before this, he'd done Medal of Honor, the series, uh, a couple of Call of Duty games. Probably not the ones you're thinking of. I'm talking about the original Call of Duty, before Modern Warfare ever came out. And a few TV stints here and there. Then he did this song, or this song, this movie... And you have heard his music since then, I can almost guarantee it, because you've probably seen at least half of the MCU films, and Disney, and Pixar, and a, a whole host of others. And he does a great job with it. Lots of motifs. He likes to use the main theme constantly in different takes. It's really good stuff. It's good stuff. Which leads me to, of course, the intro. So let's actually start talking about the film proper. Bear with me. I have four pages of notes here. So... Supers are normal enough to be basically an everyday aspect of life. Okay, that makes sense. That's pretty much the typical Marvel slash DC take, right? When everyone knows who Thor is, when people see some guy bust through the ceiling with a hammer, they're like, oh my god, it's Thor, and they take pictures, right? So, okay, I'm with that. In this case, though, this is set a little bit further back, back in the 60s, with surprisingly advanced technology for the time, although that makes sense, given the fact that the setting has basically been supercharged by not only financial matters, but other geniuses. Remember, while Buddy is obviously a super genius, so is Edna Mode. That's at least two that we know of just right off the top of our heads in this one film. So they've probably been pushing the envelope substantially, very fallout, if you will. 
This is a good time to mention the art style. I'm going to go ahead and freely admit the actual fidelity of the art style has not held up as well as I remembered. There's a lot of scenes where it's just... But you know what holds up really well? The animation. The animation's phenomenal, pretty much throughout the whole work. In fact, several points in this rumination, I'm going to point out people's facial expressions, which add to a scene, which is awesome, because you need to really know what you're doing in order to make someone give a specific facial animation when it comes to this kind of thing. And remember, doing this many human beings was unheard of in CGI at the time. Pushing the envelope. I also want to comment on stylisticness. Now, high fidelity is a style. You know, try, it, Fidelity is about making something look as realistic and high quality as possible. But that is a style, a choice, which I actually don't care for personally, but let's not get into that. Because the other choice is to stylize, and so you, you come up with some kind of aesthetic, something that, that fits your particular niche, or niche, or however you want to say that, which is exactly what they do here. And I do think the stylized nature works quite well for it. It's probably one of the reasons why it has withstood the test of time in most ways. You look at Elastigirl and you're like, yeah, no, that's not what a human body looks like. But it doesn't matter because it does fit the setting. Anywho, we get a brief interview, just a very quick thing, getting us into the movie. Mr. Incredible mentions how he wants to settle down. I find myself wondering about that. Because I'm not sure he actually does, but because that's kind of contrary to everything else about his character in the whole film. But then I remembered that all I have to do is add a caveat so he can have his cake and eat it too. He wants to settle down with a family while still being a superhero. He wants both. This then leads naturally into his relationship with Elastigirl and how they're going to make it work while still being supers. I know they kind of call them metas in some of the work, but since they call them supers consistently here, that's the terminology I'm going to try to use. I, I usually think of them as capes. I think I got that from uh, Watchmen, but anyways. That then, of course, leads to Elastigirl, who is in no way interested in settling down, right? I mean, God, no, I've, I've got to keep superheroing. <clears throat> so why do, th do things end up the way they do? He's very unhappy with the thing, with the post-settle down, and she's seemingly much more happy with it. However, and I hate to cheat and include Incredibles 2 here, neither of them are happy with it. That's that's the point, actually. Both of them are happy to be with each other and with their family. That is absolutely made clear many, many times. But both of them want to go back to being superheroes on top of that. One, one and two both make that very clear, that both are united in that. What's the difference between the two? Well, aside from the comedy aspect, which I'll discuss in a minute... The biggest difference is that he is unyielding and she is flexible. Wah, wah. Anyways. So, naturally they have super gadgets, as we'll kind of mention. First of all, there's a lot of Bond parallels here, but second of all, it makes perfect sense for someone who is effectively an agent of the United States government to have the funding necessary to have the cool toys. We also see something very interesting and very important uh, in this intro sequence. It's obviously a nice action-y sequence to get the audience involved, but a lot of exposition is done visually as it progresses. And the biggest thing that I took away is that he is competent. Now that's important, and it's going to be a recurring trend. For all of his ego problems, for all of his confidence, for all of his emotional in instability and all that fun stuff, the fact is, he knows what he's doing. With no warning whatsoever, he manages to save a cat 
for, for an old woman, prevent robbers from escaping, then go try to stop a guy on the roof, and save a guy's life, even though he didn't want to, then stop bomb voyage, and then manage to prevent a train. And he had no prep time or work for any of this. It was just him reacting on the fly according to his instincts and his training. He is good at his job. He is also causing a decent amount of collateral damage for his job, which makes sense. He's a flying brick, although he can't fly, but you get the point. High strength, high durability. One of the most bare-bones, basic power kits that exists. Which is one of the reasons I like the fact that Elastigirl does not have a bare-bones typical kit. Elasticity, flexibility, is not a super common thing. Yes, I know, I know. Mr. Fantastic. <sighs> Read. But ignoring that, it's not a super common one, and I think they do some really creative things with hers. They also have some great banter. It's implied here that she is just as good as he is, which, given what we see later, I absolutely buy into. Now, this is also important, because it means that the two of them, coincidentally or not, are top tier. In fact, uh, although there's obviously some bias on this, the villain of this work later on actually lists Mr. Incredible as the highest uh, difficulty rating, challenge rating, of anyone in his database. Although Elastigirl's pretty high tier as well, although I think Gamma Jack was actually the second highest tier. Anyways, so they have some great banter, and it's just, apparently this is just a typical superhero city, because it's just one problem after another. Then the supervillain, or excuse me, excuse me, then the guy tries to commit suicide, very publicly. I'm going to ask a, a question that's going to sound unkind here, but hear me out, because... I've studied this, and there's some personal experience on this one, okay? Suicide is one of those really things to talk about, because it's still a taboo topic. But generally speaking, what tends to happen is someone has something that pushes them far enough, so they do something overt, you know, something violent, a sudden radical change, like getting run over by a car, or shooting themselves, or stabbing themselves, you know, cutting their own throat or jumping off of a tall building, or whatever, right? It's something big and dramatic that they can't take back. That's important. Statistics tend to show that people who are saved from those situations usually tend to be grateful that they were saved. Now, that depends on the kind of care they receive afterwards, since, well, let's just say that if you are treated as suicidal, you are not treated particularly well in certain areas. But let's, let's assume you're treated properly. Now, that's important because it means that most people who try to commit suicide don't really want to die. It just seems like the best possible option out of a lot of terrible options, or perhaps the least terrible would be a better way to put that. Are you with me with all this? This is all important, because if someone decides to, for example, uh, dehydrate themselves to death as a method of suicide, that takes days. In fact, it can take over a week. I know what you're thinking, three days, but no, trust me, it can take a while. And you have to suffer and drag yourself through hell every step of the way. Which means every day, hell, every hour, and at a certain point, every minute, you are making a conscious choice to kill yourself. It's not something you could just spur of the moment, right? There's also plenty of points at which you can turn around and change your mind. To decide, no, I don't, this is not actually acceptable. Now, I'm saying all of that to ask a very simple question. Do you think he actually wanted to die? 
the I was watching this and I was looking at it and I was like, you know what? I don't think he did. I think he made a nice big public thing and jumped or fell. It's kind of unclear. And then he was saved, but in so doing, you know, his back or neck or whatever was broken. And then either he or his lawyer, probably an ambulance chaser, were like, hey, you know what we could do? We could make a lot of money. And in so doing, this begins the cycle, the legal cycle. I am getting slightly ahead of myself, but I wanted to talk about this here because that's my take on it. And as ever, I am curious of yours. So, this is when he goes over and finds about Bomb Voyage. Oh, no! Uh, by the way, uh, a couple things. First of all, we do see Buddy at this point, and a bit of quick and dirty exposition about how he's been at every fan club, and he makes him sign things, but actually sneaking on board the car is just officially unacceptable. And using his jet boots in order to fly in is also similarly unacceptable. This scene very quickly, rather the scene in the building, very quickly and efficiently establishes three important aspects of this film. Aspect number one, by the way, a lot of the stuff I'm going to say in here is probably something that someone else has covered, so forgive me for the repetition. So aspect number one, Buddy was obviously always a genius. In fact, it has been argued that he himself is a super. It's just his superpower is super smarts. Entirely possible. Um... The second thing that this has established is that this is a dark film. There's absolutely no hesitation whatsoever by, you know, there's a suicide attempt, and there's nearly a crashed car, and then Bon Voyage tries to kill a kid. All of that is established very quickly and very efficiently. The next thing that's established, and the final thing that's established by this sequence is what I'm going to call the Simpsons tone, and I'm going to be referring to that a lot. The Simpsons tone is when there's a very serious and properly done mature undercurrent to things, which is kind of coded in something that is intended to be comedic. A proper utilization of Simpsons tone tends to be the kind of thing that, well, gives Pixar its overall appeal, doesn't it? Oh, no, hear, hear me out. How many of you guys... By the way, Brad Bird would go on to work on a lot of Pixar films after this in a producing, production fashion, in addition to being personally involved with Ratatouille. How many of you have heard of Pixar being referred to as good for the kids and good for the adults, right? I'm sure that, that at least some of you have heard of that concept. This is how you execute that. You make things presented in a way that's funny and silly, but you also have things underneath that, which you don't overemphasize, but nevertheless you don't flinch away from. Again, suicide and attempting to murder a child. Oh, by the way, lawsuits while we're on the subject. This is proper dark storytelling, or as I like to call it, mature storytelling. But I don't want to get into the lawsuits just yet. I guess I will, I just brought it up. They bring a lawsuit against Mr. Incredible. Mr. Incredible is a government agent. Do you see the problems here? Actually, in real life, it's not until... Oh, God, I'm not sure sure of the year. I should have looked it up. It, was, it wasn't possible to sue government officials under certain circumstances for a fairly large amount of the United States history. I don't know how this is in other countries, but that, that was repealed, and so now you can go after someone who is a government agent for something they're doing on the job, like Mr. Incredible was here. But this causes huge issues. This is one of the reasons why that law existed, to protect people and allow them to do their jobs without fear of being sued. 
Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'm not making comment on. I'm just sharing the facts as presented. So they sue him, and then they just start suing all sorts of supers. Because the floodgate is open. They actually call it that in the, in the movie. The government tries to publicly distance itself from the supers, although obviously they do still care enough to keep tabs on them and still get involved with some of them, as we see later in this movie. Um, we also get a couple of nice little tidbits during this thing. Now, attention to detail is something I absolutely adore when it comes to anything, any kind of fiction, and real life, if I'm being honest. So, you might forgive me for saying, Laura, you're, you're only like two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes into the film. Why are you still talking? This entire page from this point down is all the way up to the lawsuit thing. Not only because there's a lot to unpack, but because I kept freezing the game, the game, the movie, I call a lot of things game. I'll, I'll be like, you know, the, the refrigerator start, stops working. I'm like, game, come on. I play a lot of games in my life. What do you want from me? The movie, I froze the movie multiple times in order to see what was being shared. And lo and behold, there was stuff there. Check this out. So, one of the newspapers that goes by mentions that the storm is pounding the coast. And in the interview, they mention how weird it is because they've never had to deal with a storm before. Usually a superhero shows up and alters the weather. There's also multiple articles across multiple newspapers which all say the same thing a drastic increase in crime. By the way, the paper that Bob actually reads during the dinner scene later in this movie also mentions a drastic increase in crime. Then, uh, oh, is that it, actually? That's it from these particular sections. Right, because I was... Right. Um, this, of course, leads to the government making the bargain. All right, here's the deal. We'll go ahead and wipe away all the legality for this. No one can sue you. No one can come after you. In exchange, we give up. We give in to the public demand. You go off the grid. That's the deal. And for 15 years, no superheroes, supervillains, excuse me, try anything. Which I could probably spend another 10 minutes just talking about that by itself. But all I'm going to say in summary to that is none of the supervillains have superpowers. How interesting. Given the behind-the-scenes information on Gamma Jack and the worries that he was going to become a supervillain, I have a really strong feeling, especially given how nationalized and baked into the setting, and how normal supers are, that there's a whole process and system in place to detect and find supers, and if they decide to go villainous, to... before they become a problem. Either that, or if you want to be more optimistic about it, you could also say that simply having superpowers kind of makes you more inclined to being a decent person rather than a bad person? Of course, that brings up the question of Syndrome, and does he have superpowers? Entirely feasible? I don't know, but I'm getting ahead of myself, because there's one other thing I want to comment on, and that's the wedding. They have this very quick, impromptu wedding, which is a nice bit. Low, low reception, small reception, low key. You ever, you ever been to a wedding? I've been to like seven in my life, and been a part of planning one of them. That kind of thing is planned months in advance, scheduled months in advance, cost tens of thousands of dollars, and it, it was a huge thing. There's the prep thing, you know. I like how none of that is here. Not because I think that that's, you know, a terrible thing, but more because what I think is that two superheroes who are trying to keep uh, 
who are part of the superhero community, who are trying to keep their identities on the down low, who want just a quick ceremony to wed, would do exactly this. It's not even daytime. It's at the end of the evening. They're at the, the ceremony. They're in their outfits. They get married in front of friends and family, and that's it, right? By the way, I mentioned that I paused uh, this thing earlier. So in the background we have Edna, of course she's there, Stratogale, Gazer Beam, Rick from the government, Meta Man, Dyna Guy. Also, they talk about uh, Meta Group here. Well, there's there's weird background information on this, and some of it may be canon and some of it may not be. I know the comics were basically torpedoed by the very existence of Incredibles 2, but the Meta Group is a group of people who are supers who police other supers. And here again, I mentioned that idea of, you know, making sure no super villains exist. Yeah. <clears throat> Flash forward 15 years. So, I mentioned how this story likes to do serious things wrapped in comedy. This is a good example of that. Bob works in insurance. You ever work in insurance? I did very briefly as part of a training thing to get a job at an insurance place. I ended up not being selected for that job because of some bullcrap, but that was actually a really good thing because I can't put into words how soul-draining that was. I really can't. And that's real life. Never mind something like this, which is obviously exaggerated for comedic effect. He is so overtly and obviously soul-drained. It's insane. Now, not to flip-side this, but... He's talking to this old woman, and she's like, Oh, God, it's horrible. Why isn't my insurance covering this? And he's like, uh, Well, oh, okay, let me let me help you out, ma'am, in an awesome scene. Here's the problem. Bob is not a good judge of character. He demonstrates this repeatedly throughout this entire film. So, um... What, what I'm trying to say is that it's entirely feasible that there are plenty of people who give him a sob story in order to get their insurance, you know, to provide for them. Now, I point that out because Bob, I think, is the kind of person who would be especially susceptible to that. Not only because he is not a good judge of character, but because he hates his job so much that he would like to do anything he can to try and, you know, help someone. Eh, just food for thought. He does know the bureaucracy well enough to move through it. He is not dumb, after all. In fact, nothing in this film actually portrays him as actively stupid. He is ground down and depressed and bitter, but he is still intelligent enough to know how to tell a woman to navigate the bureaucracy and apparently has a long history of doing so. We also find out about Mr. Huff here, who was, of course, the real villain of this film. I'm barely kidding. He is a very Dolores Umbridge-type character, and I kind of wish I could smack him. Meanwhile, we cut to Dash. Dash is, of course, uh, you know, acting out, because that's just what kids tend to do. We also show, it's a good showcasing of his powers and also Violet's very quickly and efficiently so that we get to see their powers in action and thus we know who and how and what they are. So no need to sit down and say, so this is Violet. And as you know, Violet, you have the ability to go invisible. Yes, brother, but as you know, I also have the ability to... No, none of that. It's just showcased very quickly, very efficiently. Good stuff. Um, I have to mention, though, He, encouraging Dash in a situation like this is not a good thing. A kid who has superpowers who thinks they can get away with it is actually amazingly dangerous. 
I found myself wondering, you know, it, it, that there's, we, we in real life have so much trouble being good parents. I can't even imagine what it would be like to parent a super. My sister and I actually talked about this briefly when it came to my niece. Like, just as a, a fun story, we're thinking, okay, what if she had superpowers? And we'd be like, oh, God, that would be terrible. That would be just the worst possible thing. I mean, imagine that. Imagine all that lack of understanding, all that lack of maturity, all that, you know, developing intellect and emotional grid. And, oh, oh, and also you can run around like the Flash. Like, that's just terrifying. Fortunately, they do seem to have a decent amount of experience. And as I mentioned before, both Elastigirl and Mr. Incredible are high enough tier to deal with their kids if it really came down to it. So that's something. Note that neither of these people are happy here. I, I, I pointed that out. Both uh, Helen and Bob are not happy in their lives. She's adapting to it more, because she's more flexible. But he gets the small car, and it really helps to undersell the point of how self-sacrificing he is being here. How he's willing to go to the job that he hates in order to drive in the car that he hates, in order to deal with the traffic he hates, in order to come home and have nothing worthwhile to come home to, other than his family. Whereas she gets the family car, but, of course, naturally, you know, she's the one who has to deal with the kids and has to go to school and has to be the one to talk to the principal. And so she has her own self-sacrifices she's going through. Both of them have effectively sacrificed their careers and their personal agendas for the sake of making it work and having a family. Which, mockery aside, this is actually pretty legit cool of both of them. I'm not sure I know a lot of people who would be mature enough to make that kind of a choice if pushed to. But the important part I'm wanting you to pull away from this is neither is happy. So, naturally he has way less self-control, and he's not even paying attention as he's cutting the thing, by the way. And of course damages the car because he wasn't looking where he was stepping, and so forth and so on. I do like how the soups at the dinner table, which is, is basically a comedy section, this is the Simpsons thing all over again, segues almost immediately into him reading the paper and finding out that Gazer Beam is now missing. Oh, and by the way, as I mentioned earlier, crime is still on the rise. Huh. Anywho, <clears throat> Lucius is awesome. Samuel L. Jackson is similarly awesome. I, I do like the idea that Lucius plays the cool old friend of the... Anyways, a nice bit is that, and the, the episode keep the episode, God, I've been covering Star Trek a lot lately. Can you tell? The movie brings up a nice bit where a comp, you know, it tries to bring up a serious point so the audience is aware of it, but then pretty much immediately flattens that with whatever else is going on. He saw Gazer Beam in the newspaper. That is foreshadowing. Gazer Beam is very dead. We'll see his corpse later in this very film. He also then brings up Gazer Beam to his friend who then immediately changes the topic back to be like, I don't give a damn. The only one of the old days I keep track of is you, Bob. I want to go bowling. So you see how the topic there is just overwhelmingly about what they're doing and how they're doing it and, and lying to their wives and all that fun stuff. And just, just quietly underneath there, oh yeah, by the way, Gazer Beam's missing. Huh. So... This also leads to uh, the big scene where they're like, oh, God, what do we do? And, and they're trying to deal with this thing. Um, they leave a guy who is frozen, no pun intended, and uh, just behind them. You, you figure someone's going to bring that up. It's only been 15 years since Super's bowed out of this, so they probably have a Code 37 or whatever. 
I don't know what a code 37 actually is, but you get the point. A code, there was a super here. They also, it's funny, Bob was right, hitting the wall did actually wreck the building. Go figure. This is the Spider-Man idea. Let's just call it what it is. The Spider-Man idea is you don't have the backing, you don't have the authority, you don't have the tacit approval, you don't have the resources. All you have is personal power, something that doesn't really exist in real life. So you have personal power, and you want to help people and do good. So you become Spider-Man. This is one of the core elements of what makes Spidey Spidey, is the fact that he has nothing and tries to do everything with what little he has. It usually goes badly for him. Go figure. This is exactly what these two are doing, and it, it is implied that they've been doing this for a while, and this is not the first time things have gone badly. It could have gone a lot worse, too. So, this then leads to a quick bit of uh, competence. Ooh, that feels weird. By both Bob and Helen. He notices that she's there, even though she's sitting in the dark looking away from him. Ha ha, he's got the bit of cake on his face. And he's fat, isn't that funny? There's also the fact that she notices the rubble on his shoulder without even trying. And so they get into an argument. A very interesting argument. So first of all, he's following the police scanners again. Not the first time. Uh, well, I'm saying that obviously this is not the first time, but what I really mean by that is she's caught him in this before. So this is past not the first time. This is more like the 15th time or whatever. Second, we also see... During the argument, she says something. Uh, you're missing... Uh, what you're missing is this family. What's happening now as you're trying to reach back to the past. And his expression actually noticeably softens at that as he considers what she's saying and, and is like, mm, that, that's an interesting point. But then, of course, it segues back into an anger bit because she brings up, you're not even going to go to the graduation. He then gets legitimately upset. Not at her, of course, but at the graduation. They keep finding ways to celebrate mundanity. This line and several other bits in the film make it very clear to me that, in my opinion, Mr. Incredible is biased. Now, of course he is. I'm not sure if I could say it's full tilt into racism, species, and whatever you want to call that. But the man definitely has a anti-normal bias. And he shows it several times. He keeps it pretty tightly under wrap. But he really wants to be exceptional. To be above and beyond the other people. To be super when nobody else is. Key distinction. Earlier on, there's a brief quote. Uh, everyone's super, dash, which is a funny way of saying no one is. That's probably one of the biggest overall themes of the entire work. I'd say one of the two big ones. The idea of that distinction and the automatic elitism and classism that it embodies. Because when one person is special, or a group of people is special, above and beyond everyone else, you have automatically created a divide. And, of course, that is the entire motivation for Syndrome. At every step of the way, when he is pushed on that, and wonderful facial and vocal acting for Syndrome, I know he hasn't been introduced yet, but hear me out. Every step of the way, he gets angry or pissy anytime anyone mentions the supers or the heroics. You know, it went by, you, you killed real supers so you can be a fake superhero. He gets livid at that. Oh, like his, his expression just goes vile. And, of course, he's really angry that everyone is celebrating the supers. 
who are above him. And Bob is at least partially responsible for perpetuating this problem by putting himself and his family, but still himself, on a pedestal above everyone else. I'll come back to this point later when it comes up in another big way, but for now, well, this then leads to the biggest question. Why did they give Bob this job? This is not the first time he's had to be relocated, and they know this guy, right? So they give him a job that is one of the most pathetically, horrifyingly, soul-sucking jobs imaginable. His cube farm is barely large enough for him. Oh, and he sits right next to a high-power thing. That's cute. And... <laughs> I'm just... Why would you give this guy this job? Now, don't mistake me. Based on my own analysis, I think he'd be unhappy in any job, even a satisfying job or, or a decent job, one that didn't make him hate his life every day. So I think this would still happen even in those circumstances. But it's hard for me to feel bad for Rick and the government guys when they're like, oh, God, we constantly have to pay to relocate you when the place they relocate him to is this crap. The other alternative is that Bob got this job. Now, if Bob got this job, okay, a lot more sympathetic. Why? You ever been unemployed? Have you ever been unemployed and think, okay, these are the jobs I really want. And then, these are the jobs that I would like. And then, these are the jobs I'm willing to accept. And then, these are the jobs I think I can get. And just getting more and more desperate to get a job, any job, to the point where you'll just take it as long as it's a regular paycheck. Because I've been there. It's not a very fun experience. I'm sure several of you know what I mean by that. Thus, if this is all the way down at the bottom of that list for him, and this was the only job that would employ him, well, okay then. After all, I doubt he's college-educated, uh, so... Well, you ever try to get a job, a decent job, without a degree? Obviously, it varies based on the, you know, the career path, but... Anyways, <clears throat> so, this then leads to, uh, you know, he, he gets confronted by uh, Grand Nigga's sack, and he's asked, did I do anything illegal? No, but everything's like a clock, and you could tell he's heard this speech before. We also get the impression he's been in trouble for this before. Then the, the movie does something bloody subtle. The movie does this bit where... So he's he's making sure the you know, uh, Mr. Huff, the the guy played by Grand Nick is there. He he's trying to make sure everything on his desk is all neat and tidy, and during a very brief bit, he's adjusting the piece of paper that's on his desk so it lines up. This draws Bob's attention. Bob looks down at it, and thus the camera focuses on it. I pause the movie to read it. I wrote it down for you. Due to financial setbacks you will now be expected to self-expense all office supplies, including, but not limited to, pencils, erasers, pens, paper, stationery, folders, staples, paper clips, couldn't figure out this one, and photocopies. All parking will now be metered by the hour. Electricity consumption and all telephone charges will be deducted from your paycheck. The Board of Directors at InsuraCare wishes to thank you for your selfless sacrifice through this time of financial uncertainty. It is because of you, the employees, that InsuraCare has recorded its highest profit in years. 
Does that sound familiar? There's actually another paragraph, but his hand is covering it, so I could make his... Remember, a successful company makes for... And that's about all I could come pick out of it. Like I said, Dolores Umbridge. So, he, uh... This leads to, well, his biggest flaw overall. He punches him and throws him through a wall, or two or three or four or five. Bob doesn't really do long-term thinking. He can be forced to, and he can think tactically, but he's more of an improv guy, whereas Elastigirl tends to be more of a long-term thinker. She's thinking about what to do three steps ahead. He's thinking about what to do now. No judgment, by the way. It's just their approach is completely different. However, when you have lost control of your temper, like he does here, well, this is what happens. So Rick offers to help one last time. Bob is a good man, after all. He's just, you know, trouble. But this leads me to pause the movie and ask you a very important question. Why does Bob do heroics? I'll go ahead and pause for just a second here for you to dive to the comments and say it's because he's a moron. And so are you, Lore. I hate you, Lore. Die. Die. But uh, when you're done with that, there's two big points I want to address here. Uh, point number one. Does he do it for himself? Primarily for himself. I do think he does it for multiple reasons. But does he do it primarily for his own enjoyment? His own aggrandizement? Does he do it primarily to help others, to better society and the life around him? I'm not going to give any judgment here. I'm just curious what you think. But I do want to point out, though, he's <laughs> he's got a whole room which is just decorated with all sorts of memorabilia from the glory days. And reliving the glory days is a big thing. There's also another bit I want to share. Uh, I suppose now is as good a time as any. You don't have to answer this in the comments, but you can answer it in your head or out loud. How many of you have a career path that you really care about, that you would really like to get into? Not, not like a hobby, although there's nothing... I don't... that sounds so dismissive. There's nothing wrong with a hobby, but what I mean is like something that isn't just a, f a flight of fancy. Something that's not just, oh, it'd be kind of neat. No, something you're really into. Something that really catches you, really tetrises with you in a way that few other things do. I bet a lot of you know what I'm talking about, because in my experience, most people have one or two or eight things that really works with them. It's just whether or not they know what those things are and whether or not they can do them. But I'm getting off topic. Now, let's assume for a moment that you were given the opportunity to do that thing. Let's also assume that thing benefits other people, and you already see where I'm going with this. It is undeniable, I think, that Bob's big thing is that he wants to be a superhero. He likes helping people, and I don't think he's a bad person. I don't. But it's undeniable that that is an absolute passion of his, being the hero, being in the spotlight, being up there, soaking up the accolades, and living the dream. That may be selfish, but I actually disagree. I don't think it's selfish within reason. I think it's just what he really, again, really wants to do with his life. And he has accepted not doing that because 
Well, because that's what you do, right? That's how life works. This, of course, is why now is the moment when he gets the message from Mirage. Funny thing, by the way. Mirage has a line. There's something very interesting about both of us that we share. According to the government, we don't exist. Now, she may or may not be lying there. Obviously, Mirage lies a lot. But what I find most interesting is the way she phrases that makes it sound like I'm also a superhero. This is why several people, including me, I might add, assume she did have superpowers for the longest time. Turns out, no. By direct confirmation by Brad Bird, she does not actually have any superpowers. Which continues the trend of this whole movie, where none of the villains have superpowers. So, that lines up. By the way, that's the biggest piece of evidence, I think, that Syndrome does not actually have superintelligence. Anywho. There's also... God, this scene is so Simpsons. I, I keep pointing that out in my notes. There's a bit where he rips a book in half. A very thick book. Try that. It don't actually. But it's okay, because you won't succeed. You'll, you'll, what will happen is this. Here, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it right now with a book I even care about, just to really emphasize how much I believe in this. See the sucker? It's what I use for my Star Trek videos. Now, I'm pretty strong. I'm going to go ahead and stop in case I do rip the outer edges, but I am pretty strong. That's not happening. He just effortlessly, like it's a single slit slice of paper. More than anything else he does in the entire film, that sells me on Bob's strength. I'm not even joking. He also then, as she's talking, he's like, oh god, where's a piece of paper? Where's a pen? Okay, here's a pen. Oh, this pen's out of ink. Here's another pen. <laughs> Lots of little moments like that really help this film for me. So, um, this this then leads to the fight with the Omnidroid. He's out of shape. Ha ha. I wonder how physical health works when you're super durable and super strong. Hmm. Thankfully, he is actually very good on his reflexes and very competent, as we keep pointing out. Uh, the molten metal thing happens. Uh, blah, 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 blah. He defeats the Omnidroid. One of the things that's pointed out, Syndrome tells Mirage, make sure to praise him and make special point of praising his abilities. That makes perfect sense. Not only are we trying to emphasize his abilities as being, you know, a sticking point, because the whole supers, elitism, classism thing I've already mentioned, but also because that's exactly the thing to, to get to, you know, Mr. Incredible, who, as I mentioned earlier, has a bias in that direction, so yes, I actually am superior to other people. Hmm. So, this then leads to the montage. I want to share something really quick. The montage, it's a good, it's a good montage, you know, it's cool, it's cool. But what I love most about the montage is that it makes perfect sense. This is what he always wanted. In fact, this is both of what he always wanted. He wanted to settle down with a family, but also be a super while settling down with a family. Now, that's theory. But you see how it kind of lines up with this scene here in this montage. The second thing he wanted was to be a super. Now that he finally has his career, the thing he really wants to do, he's happy. And his life overall improves. Because now, and there's the whole thing with him getting in shape. Okay, I shouldn't say that. Because even someone who is motivated can still fail at getting in shape. Because... Getting in shape is this monumentally horrific task of doom because the human body is stupid. It's designed to survive, not to be in good shape, which just irritates the crap out of me. 
But the point is, he is clearly motivated. He is pushing himself to do the best job he possibly can. He's probably sending almost every day when he goes to work for a month, going out and pumping iron and working out and doing everything he can to get in better shape. Because now he actually gives enough of a damn to do so. He didn't earlier. That's why he ballooned up a bit. <sighs> Side note. It's hard to judge because of how stylized the characters are, but I don't think he qualifies as actually fat. It would actually be more accurate to say that he has more fat in him, but still plenty of muscle. I'm pretty sure that there are actual bodybuilders who would look at his form after he's you know, in, in his form here and be like, wow, I wish I looked like that. Anyways. So, he goes to reach out to Edna. Edna is in pretty much the same thing boat he is. She's also a super genius. I don't know if she has superpowered genius, but she is clearly a mad scientist, and she has all the hallmarks of it, so whatever. There's also an absolutely brilliant scene, which is comedy to be serious. It's the no-cape scene. You knew this was coming. First and foremost, he mentions, oh yeah, and a cape, and she throws a bit of paper at him. No capes. Notice up until now she's been excited, happy, enthusiastic, voiced by Brad Bird. Everything's been going great for her. And so she's totally into this and excited and already jotting down ideas. Capes? No. Now obviously this is done for comedic purposes, which is good because otherwise you'll realize that the quick montage we're watching is a lot of people dying, several of which in horrible ways. Thank goodness for the discretion shot on uh, the Tornado Gal. I've already forgot her name. Uh, Tornado Gale? whatever her name is, because she was a teenager. She wasn't even a full adult yet. She got pulped. That is horrible. But they don't show it, so it's okay. And, of course, it's portrayed as a comedy scene, so it's okay. And this is probably peak Simpsons right here. Because what's happening here is not only is this a very dark moment where we find out how several supers died over the years, but we also have a little tidbit of insight into Edna's mentality here. She is adamant about this. No capes. How many of those capes do you think she designed? I'd be willing to bet all of them. That's probably why she knows those dates and those people off the top of her head by memory. Anyways. <sighs> so he heads back to No Manistan. Ha ha ha. And, uh, ah, this is when I want to talk about the suit difference. So if you remember his suit at the beginning, it's the blue one, right? Obvious, obvious blue versus red comparisons. But what I found really interesting is the eye for Mr. Incredible. The eye in the first suit was this all-encompassing thing. Big, obvious logo. On the second thing, it's more like a little eye here, and it's got the circle around it. It's pretty obvious, I'll admit it. But I will also freely admit that I'm apparently an idiot, because I never noticed that until I started analyzing this film today. And I was like, oh, that lines up perfectly. Similar to the hair thing, it's a quick visual showcasing of the change in mentality. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, apparently Edna lives within one hour of where they live. That's, that's inconvenient. This also leads to... Incredible having decent reflexes, but losing because he has to reveal the villain, Jason Lee. I remember when I found out that Jason Lee was actually going to be in this film. And I was just like, what? Now, I didn't actually see this film uh, in theaters because 
I wasn't doing super well at this point in time, but I still was, you know, I, I was kind of recovering. I was back from, you know, no longer living in the ditch. And uh, I was like, okay, this, this, okay, well, sure, yeah, let's, let's, let's get into that. Let's figure out what's going on with it. Um, maybe we can watch it when it comes out on, you know, DVD or whatever. <sighs> get rented at the local Blockbuster. Actually, I, we didn't have a Blockbuster around there. I don't know if they were already dying out at that point in history, but the point is, why Jason Lee? And yet, he nails it. He does a really good job of the role. I think a lot of that is because what he's doing is portraying a child. I don't mean any offense to Jason Lee, but what I mean by that is, you ever have, it's the kid with the gun thing, right? There's a unique form of deadly and dangerous to seeing a child with a loaded weapon who doesn't really know what they're doing or how they're doing it or doesn't really have an understanding or appreciation of the maturity and responsibility necessary to really use that tool properly. Instead, they just got a gun that goes pow-wee, and that's syndrome in many ways. He does a really good job of portraying that. His first... Okay, obviously, this is not the first time he's shown on camera, even a syndrome. But what is effectively his introduction scene is him doing, like, the announcer thing. It's bigger. It's better. I'll never forget the first time I ever watched this. I was so confused by that that I actually thought, like, it was an issue. Like, one of my friends had, had messed with the video or something. He's like, what the heck? But no, it's just him doing the announcer thing, because he's just that... Uh. He's also very, 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 very smart. Brilliant, even. But really stupid at the same time. This is probably one of the better examples I've seen in recent history of someone with high int, low whiz. Someone who does not have anything necessary other than the intelligence to invent to really be the kind of threat he otherwise could be. He is outdone constantly, except when he already has the upper hand. Probably my favorite example is when he decides to fight his own invention towards the end of the film. He lasts about a minute before his own invention defeats him, when he has total control of said invention. That's how stupid he is. I know stupid's probably the wrong word, but his application of intelligence is terrible, even if his intelligence is super high. Sense make? So, he pops in, and uh, he mentions, I'm your biggest fan. Bob remembers that immediately. I wonder why. He has a good memory in general, so it's possible he just remembered him. And certainly Buddy had a big impact on his life and was there when you know, all, everything went down. But I actually like to think that he felt like he didn't approach Buddy properly. That he screwed up. And that, you know, he regretted that, and that leads to him, you know, having issues over the years. God, I've been talking too long. I should probably speed this up. I apologize. What I really want to talk about is the usage of the villain. Generally speaking, there's two broad thoughts when it comes to how you introduce your villain to your fictional world. You either introduce them way early on over here, and in so doing, you establish them early. This gives them time to develop, uh, have a good amount of screen time, get us invested in them. If you want a character arc for the villain, that's a good way to do that. But either way, they have a large presence in the work. Another thing to do is the exact opposite. Show them way late. Usually you do this if you're doing it as part of a reveal, or maybe you want to have their reveal have more impact, or something. Generally speaking, I prefer the former. What I find most interesting here is they actually do both. We saw Buddy in some of the earliest scenes in the entire movie. In fact, arguably the second scene of the movie included Buddy. But Syndrome is not properly revealed until 
now. This is actually quite clever and very well structured. It allows us to show some of his arc while at the same time allowing us to have some impact. And he will be a fairly regular presence for the rest of the film. So, he runs away and he nearly gets killed and there's some explosion. How did Gazerbeam learn the password, Kronos? In fact, I got a better question. How did Gazerbeam die? Like, everything everything else, the, the thing doesn't seem to be very subtle about how it kills them, and I don't think the droid would fit in that tiny cave, so what did it do to kill him? And to the point where he was able to get into the cave, and then with his last moments, Kronos into the wall. <sighs> Whatever. Convenience is convenience. This, meanwhile, leads to a cutaway. Uh, we find out that Edna has been working on super suits for everyone in what is probably one of the better comedic scenes in the entire film. And it's no doubt one of the reasons why they actually used it for part of the marketing stint. So we find out that Edna is really, really, really good at her job. I mean, making the durable suit that can stretch, that's pretty impressive. You'll notice, by the way, they actually hit the suit with rockets. Remember that. They also have Dash's suit, which can resist friction, so he can go super fast. That's impressive. But the one that really impressed me the most was the fact that Violets actually not only can stealth, which by itself is very impressive, but can stealth in reaction to her stealthing, which is even more impressive. That would mean she would need to know the technical science of how her stealth tech works and then be able to replicate something that could do that in a suit as a reaction, not a built-in mechanism. None of this is me making fun, by the way. This is just brilliant. And again, Edna Mode. So, <clears throat> great scene. She has great security. Um, we also notice, by the way, Edna is a mad scientist. It's just she's working for the good guys. As I mentioned earlier, thanks to that super-powered car from 15 years ago, for, for a second, think about how much tech has moved in 15 years. Now think about how much tech moved from 1960 to 1975. That's a big gap, is what I'm trying to say. So the, imagine how many super-tech, super-geniuses are poached or bought into or otherwise catered to by you know the good guys and the government in order to make sure that they stay super-helpful rather than super villainous <laughs> because i mean there's nothing wrong with a mad scientist within reason so long as they're on your side right right stark we see more competence there's actually a really great scene it's probably the best sequence of scenes in the whole film legitimately because what happens is he infiltrates the place. We notice that he is very good at what he does, by the way. He effortlessly infiltrates this facility and doesn't get caught at all until the alarm goes off. He does. I want to stress that. He does not get caught once this whole time. That is damned impressive. Now, he does it by leaving a pile of bodies. You know, the Assassin's Creed method of stealth. You know, it doesn't count as being detected if no one's left alive to detect you. So that's his approach. Keep that in mind for later. But he sneaks his way in, all the way in there. And the tension is spliced with this and the cut to her. As she's trying, as she's like, oh God, where's my husband? No, no, that can't be. He should be on a thing. As she's starting to freak out about what this could possibly mean. And then it cuts back to him and he's getting in there. And this is when the mood of the overall work really dips into, you know, the darkness, the second act dark part. As we find out that Mirage and Syndrome 
have been murdering supers for a while. We also see several we recognize, and just about everyone I have named is in those files of being killed. We find out Elastigirl is not currently known. He is listed as dead. Frozone was his next target. Now that's a bit of darkness. If not for the fact that, sh that he had been skipping out on going bowling to go hang out with his friend, and he had been identified as Mr. Incredible as, as connected to Frozone, what it most likely would have happened is Frozone would have been recruited and then murdered. And then they would have gone after whoever next, probably Incredible. And that's kind of horrifying. Imagine just, yeah, I haven't heard from Lucius in forever. It's weird. He just kind of fell off the map. I was talking to his wife the other day. She hasn't heard from him in days. Anyways, the music is brilliant here. By the way, this is this is the music just absolutely shining in this whole scene. But finally, she says, okay, click, and she gets the thing so she knows exactly where he is, which, of course, means the beeper has to go off, which means he is immediately detected. And they use the Hulk. Uh, there's actually a term for that. It's the stuff that slowly expands, but restricts your movement because it's constant resistance kind of a thing. I don't know. It's the thing you use to restrain the Hulk. So that makes sense. Little note here. Syndrome never loses his costume. Did you catch that? He never appears outside of costume, whereas everyone else does to some extent or another throughout the course of the film. Now you might think, well, yeah, it's cheaper and easier. Eh, no, remember that whole not compromising thing I mentioned? No, Syndrome is always in his costume because that's always how he wants to be. He always wants to be running around in his cape and tights. He always wants to be the superhero, the elite, the one above everyone else, to contrast the fact that he wasn't. This is, by the way, the final reason why I don't think he actually has superpowers. Not not really. Even superintelligence. Because it just kind of, even though it would make sense, it throws itself in the face of the whole work. The only way it would work is if it was kind of an ironic thing. Oh, yeah, by the way, you actually had powers the whole time. Ha! Ah, go figure. <clears throat> you ever had a gun pointed at you? I know that's a strange thing to ask. I have. I have had someone try to you know, threaten me with a loaded weapon. I'm saying this kind of flatly because I don't know how to explain what that felt like. To this very day, that kind of gets a reaction out of me. Just thinking about it does. It's a weird sort of high-pitched whine in the back of your mind that just kind of makes you focus a little bit differently, you know? So I hope most of you do not know what that feels like. I bring this up because what happens next is she is flying a plane, a government plane with tons of gadgets on it, of course, in order to get to there, and is requesting landing, gets in suit, finds out that her kids are on board, and then they shoot missiles at her. And there's this bit where the missiles are getting closer and just kind of slowly coming in like someone's pointing the gun at them. And there's this bit where Dash is looking out the window, and he just has this line, Mom? Because he doesn't fully understand, but the fear is still there. And that really struck me. This also is a critical point on the story, because Syndrome is willing to kill children. Now, <laughs> this is a, this is a, this is a point. First of all, you'll notice that the mother <laughs> runs out, that is a last-ditch effort, because Violet, under pressure, cannot make the, the bubble happen, because she's freaking out, as everyone's yelling at her, including her mother. But also... 
her mother reaches out, grabs both of them, and envelops them in her in her you know elastic body. When the rockets hit, she basically takes several direct missile strikes. Sure, a good thing that suit can take rockets, huh? It still knocks her out as it should. This also, well, this leads to the bit where Mirage is picked up. And, uh, you know, he's like, I, I'm going to snap her like a toothpick. Which, of course, he could effortlessly, probably with two fingers. But instead, he doesn't. This is when Syndrome says, I've outgrown you. Which is actually interesting, because it is the exact opposite of true. He never outgrew Mr. Incredible. In fact, he never grew up in general. He has never gotten over this. His big plan involves him having fun his whole life by pretending to be a superhero. And then he's going to retire and sell his invention to ensure that no one else can ever be super again. He is so spiteful towards that class divide I mentioned earlier that he's willing to kill children in addition to many other people and cause untold chaos and devastation as he is the villain operating things just in order to play at being a super. And it is playing. As is made very clear when he fights his own Omnidroid towards the end, he's terrible at it. He's pathetic. This is also in good contrast to the hyper-competency portrayed by both of the uh, both the married couple, uh, Bob and Helen. <sighs> Sorry about that. I got a voice or a, a phone call from my beloved sister, and she doesn't often call me, so I thought it might have been an emergency. Uh, so I had to pick that up. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure where I cut off, but I do know I was talking about Mirage. So, Mr. Incredible threatens her. And he's like, yeah, go ahead and kill her. Whatever. And, of course, the whole I've outgrown you thing, which I do know I've just mentioned. She, uh... Well, this is about rationalization. I've heard some people say Mirage is a horrible human being and shouldn't deserve to be you know, redeemed. And it's just an, yet another example of whitewashing when it comes to villains in fiction. I'm not 100% sure I agree with that. Well... I hesitate to call her a good person, and she does obviously have a thing for Bob. The fact of the matter is, she has limits, lines which she's willing to accept. In short, luring someone who is effectively an ex-military vet with superpowers into an island to get them killed... Eh, you know, it's, it's a little easier to swallow than shooting a plane that contains two children, which is obviously a line for her then her own life is immediately threatened and basically discarded by the person who was probably her lover, and definitely her boss. You could see why, relatively quickly, she goes ahead and turns coat. So, this leads to uh, the wonderful pacing of this film. I've ta I talk about pacing a lot, and there's a lot of different ways to approach pacing when it comes to a fictional work, but the most common way I tend to describe it is by doing this. You have highs and you have lows. A high doesn't necessarily mean high octane. It could be a very tense moment. It could be a very comedic moment. It could be a moment with a lot of action. But it's something that's a high in overall beat or tone or atmosphere. Then you go down to a low where things are quiet, which could also mean peaceful or deadly or very serious or very grief-stricken. You, you, there's a lot of ways to do this, but you get the general idea. This... Uh, is also to do with how quickly things move with regards to these different dips up and down. This film is brilliantly paced. 
it really does manage a wonderful tempo between highs and lows. At no point did I get bored. At one point, I looked down. I was like, "Wow, I'm, I'm this, 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 this. I can't believe the film's almost over because it's just been racing by so quickly." Most of my today has been spent working on just this one video because it's a two-hour film, and I have a lot of behind-the-scenes work to do for these kind of things. But the point remains. And of course, I have to save it and record for however long it's been. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. What I do want to know is how awesome it is. So she does her infiltration. Again, different approach than his. She actually sneaks in and stealths in. She does get caught at one point and does have to dis dispose of the bodies. But she actually bothers to dispose of the bodies by hiding them in the closet, which you notice he didn't even bother with. She's going for more of a ghost playthrough than a samurai playthrough, if you follow. Which I'm with. I like. I like how it shows both of them are hyper-competent, and I like how it shows their approaches complement each other. This also leads to what is effectively uh, the big action sequence. Although, before I cut to that, there's this bit where she can figure out where he's being held because of the ridiculous amount of energy. I like to think that the overwhelming majority of the, the power that the whole base is generating is going towards that one room and that one thing to keep him in motion because of just how strong he is. And if you're paying attention, it's still not enough. Under extreme circumstances, he can still pull against it like he did with Mirage. Just to give an idea of just how strong he is. Mirage then goes to let him out. And this also leads to... Uh, oh god, I can't... Uh, the, the gentleman who plays Bob, I actually don't remember his name. He usually plays someone kind of lighthearted, you know, just sort of a jokey kind of a sitcom character. He manages to sound absolutely terrifying when he's, you know, you know, there's no time at all. Why, why do this? What else could you possibly take from me? Oh, they're still alive. <sighs> Instant relief hug. Oh, thank God they're still alive. Oh, it's my wife. Oh, thank God my wife's here. And of course she's pissed off because she just saw her husband embracing another woman. Wah, wah. But what's funny is the next several scenes between the two has Helen trying to start an argument with him and failing because he is just so happy to see her. Which actually is still her being more mature than him in a way because she's trying to deal with the issue and he just doesn't care at the moment. Long-term thinking, short-term thinking. Moving on. Big action sequence. I don't have much to share about it. Uh, it's just awesome. Dash is awesome. Uh, he kills people. That's cool. That's cool. Not that I mind. He actually killed several people. Uh, also, they're okay with killing a kid. I love the hover... I don't know what to call those. The hover vehicles they have, the spinning blade things, those are really cool. I don't know if that's actually like a feasible method of doing that. I, I would imagine not. It looks really cool, though. Like the kind of thing you'd see in Star Wars. And then Dash dashes over the water. Okay, that's awesome. Give you that one. So they start to teamwork. And that's when they really start to beat the crap out of everyone. In fact, if not for Syndrome showing up, they would have absolutely curb-stomped everything there. This then leads to the crux of the film in a nutshell. You killed real superheroes in order to, to be, pretend to be a superhero? He's obviously so pissed off about this because he is still classist. That's what I've decided on. But his expression, Syndrome's expression when he's called fake, no! No, I'll I'll do this, and I'll I'll, I'll I'm gonna run around, and I'll sh I'll be real. I'll be more real than you even know. I'm gonna make this work. 
you know, it's, it's, you could tell how much he has not moved on from this point at all. It's, I've already said all this stuff. It's just a really good scene to emphasize it. And of course, this, this gets across the big point of the whole film. When everyone's super, no one will be. It's actually probably my favorite quote of the whole film. Because it's so obvious what he means by it, and he is so overtly wrong about it, while at the same time being exactly right about it. Let me try to dis disentangle this. The whole idea behind calling someone special, looking at you, Lego Movie, which we may be ruminating on this year, I, I don't know. I haven't gotten the full poll results yet. The only reason I'm doing this one today is because I know with total certainty that this one was voted in. So we might be covering this exact same topic later with the Lego movie. But the idea of everyone being special isn't a contradiction. And it doesn't mean no one is. The only way it means no one is is if your definition of special means better. If it is a divide, a classist thing, as I mentioned earlier. That gap between the elite and the normal and the insulting connotations that come along with the word normal. But the truth is a little bit more complex than that, as it often is. The idea that we are all special because we are, in fact, all special. Remember, it was the normies who managed to push the supers out of business. Not by overpowering them, not by defeating them or monologuing. It's monologuing, the world will soon be his. But by simple virtue of their choices. But... It's also worth noting that the movie gets across this idea of... How do I phrase this? The idea that he is so fixated on that divide of presumed elitism that all he wants to do is be elite himself. He doesn't want equality. He just wants to be the person on top. Whereas, as Bob is slowly developing an understanding of, and Helen is helping with, they're kind of showing more of an idea of there's nothing wrong with being different, and it doesn't make us better. It makes us different. That's what being special can be perceived to mean, depending on your definitions, which is why I brought that up. This, I think, is one of the bigger themes of the film, as I've mentioned before, and really comes just beautifully into this scene. I love it, as ever. I would love to hear your thoughts on this, too. But I'm not done yet. I kind of am. The movie has effectively ended. They they get free effortlessly. Um, they fight, and Frozone, of course, has his gear ready to go. This is the victory lap. This is the victory lap. All the tension, all the darkness, and all the serious parts of the film are over. All of the actual major central conflicts have been resolved at this point in the film. No, really. Um, the classism thing has been understood. Bob has come to a different mentality and, of course, understands the value of what he has lost. Helen understands him better. The two of them both want to be supers again. The idea of you know, Mirage and her mentality and the teamwork concept, which is something that's going to come in in just a second. Other than the one scene, which is even just like a fraction of a scene, we're done with all the serious stuff. It's time for the victory lap. Because from now on, what we have is two things, action and comedy. And the whole fight against the android is basically a comedy work. I don't mind that, but I have very little to say about it. That's why I've actually already mentioned the things I have to say about it, like with Syndrome being pathetic and taken out immediately. And, of course, you know, we'll get there when we get there. And, you know, the directions. It's good jokes. It makes me laugh and I enjoy it. It's just from an analysis perspective. 
I don't have much to say about it other than what I just did. Fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. One last scene. I mentioned that. I can't lose you. I'm not strong enough. I wonder if his motive about whether or not he cares more about other people or himself has shifted at this point. Or maybe this is just a sign of him maturing a bit more in his emotional depth. His grid having an additional layer to it rather than simply seeing things in a binary fashion. He mentions he's not strong enough. It's very clear, both in the, both in the presentation of the actor and the, the facial acting, that he doesn't mean strong enough. He means, I can't endure that. I thought I lost my family. Probably like the previous day, given the, the timeline here. I'm not strong enough to deal with that again, so please stay here and let me deal with it. It is Helen who has to say, don't worry, we got your back. We'll make sure that doesn't happen as a group. And, of course, this kind of ties into the second theme, the teamwork theme, which actually ties beautifully in with the special theme. Because when everyone's special, we can accomplish some amazing things. Big fight. Public opinion sways. Violet puts her hair back. The underminer shows up. Um... <laughs> I love It's actually the funniest gag in the whole film. Uh, is when there's this, they're, they're, they're cheering Dash on. I'm sorry, I actually have two other things to say, but they're cheering Dash on. And it's like, nah, no, no, go slower. No, don't give up. Go faster. Okay, now pull it back, pull it back. And it just cuts to this guy randomly. He's just. <laughs> Beautiful expression. It, it gets me every time. I'm sorry, I love that. It's probably the funniest gag in the whole bit. Um. But I did say I have two other things to talk about. One is Syndrome. So Syndrome comes back right at the end. And naturally, he still hasn't learned a damn thing. He hasn't matured. He has no idea what he's doing. His All his assets are frozen. His financial empire is gone. But he is brilliant enough. He could probably still make that work with the gadgets he has. And he's going to go and steal their children and raise him as his own to be a sidekick. Because that way I will get my petty, un <coughs> unemotionally mature, immature... Revenge. Throw me. So we see the, the wife spear. Apparently, uh, My Little Pony took, t took, took t uh, tips from this one. And then... <laughs> and then Syndrome meets his biggest fan. <laughs> uh, I liked that one. I mean, you gotta have a cape, right? Capes are cool, right? Funny fact, the real reason capes aren't in this film is because it would be so much more expensive and difficult to constantly animate the capes along with everything else. <laughs> this was a great film, and I hope you enjoyed talking about it. I hope to see your guys' comments in the future, and I hope someday we get to cover more of the Pixar uh, library because there's some awesome stuff to discuss and analyze there. You know, I think uh, it would be really cool if we see a sequel of this film. How about in about 14 years?